another sneaky right hand. This time he works over the shoulder. Show streaming live, tcmartinshow.com. VGK Frank in the house. Numchuck here on the other side of the actual glass. And we will be talking about the Vegas Golden Knights, their trip to Lake Tahoe. What do you call it, Frank? The longest game in in hockey history? Hour-wise, it's, it's got to be right up there. <laughs> not, not the longest in overtimes and all that sort of stuff because it's a regular season game. But, yeah, it took yeah, a while. It, it did. took a while. All right, Brian Salmon will join us a little bit later on in the show. He was there a long day, long night on the uh, Channel 3 coverage. NBC, of course, had the broadcast. So we'll talk about that game. We'll also talk about the fight that took place Saturday night at the MGM Grand Convention Center and uh, what a knockout it was, delivered by Oscar Valdez over Miguel Burchelt. Uh, upset in the making there. Went, uh, Valdez went into the ring 16 pounds on the underside after Burchelt decided to uh, eat a lot after the weigh-in that <laughs> took place uh, the day before. So he got in there about 146 pounds. It did not matter. Oscar Valdez delivers a crushing 10th round knockout. No save by the bell on that one. Nope. <laughs> he, is, he is the new... Uh, you know, junior lightweight champion. So we'll talk with Tim Bradley today, who uh, the five-time champ himself and does a fantastic job on ESPN. He was part of that broadcast uh, Saturday night. And again, a part of the great ESPN coverage along with himself, Joe Tessitore and Andre Ward. So always love talking to Tim. He'll give you some passionate thoughts regarding that fight. So uh, a lot to do, a lot to cover. Plus, we'll talk about some uh, college basketball as well and uh, a whole lot more coming your way on this Monday edition. All right. Golden Knights, Colorado Avalanche. They will reconvene tonight in Colorado. They've now played three games in the past six days, seven days. And uh, Colorado finally gets a home game, technically. I don't know if, if they were really 
considered, well, they considered the home team. They were considered the home <laughs> team because they lose a home game for us. Right. So they were, even right. though it was in the state of Nevada. So welcome to 2021. Yeah. <laughs> and they wore white. So there you go. That's that's that, that's uh, some old school stuff that we used to have. But yeah, Golden Knights and the Colorado Avalanche Saturday at the NHL Outdoors in Lake Tahoe. We talked a lot about this game leading up to it. Uh, the sunshine ruined the day. <laughs> Who would have ever thought? A beautiful day in Lake Tahoe, around 30 degrees, was a little bit windy, looked very nice on television, but the sun ruined the game and ruined the day. And who would have thought that you would uh, you could actually have that on a day that where it was below freezing temperatures? But uh, an eight-hour delay in all. The game ended, uh, I think the official time was 10 hours and uh, 37 minutes. Not the actual game, but uh, from beginning to end, 10 hours and 37 minutes. And the unfortunately for the Golden Knights, uh, they lose the game 3-2. to two. And uh, Nathan McKinnon, fantastic for the Avalanche. So uh, we'll dive uh, all into that today. But uh, looking at this on, on television, it came across exactly how I thought it would. Very picturesque, very beautiful. I enjoyed it. And uh, I, was, I was a little bit shocked and surprised the, the way the ice did not hold up. But I guess if you are an expert on you know, outdoor rinks and that sort of thing, uh, you would think technology would be a little bit better because you know, they weren't actually on a pond. They weren't on a lake, even though I, I believe there were some players actually thought they were actually playing on the lake. Uh, saw a couple interviews with that was pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, I thought, uh, again, a, a great idea, but it kind of went wrong. Well, it, it did go wrong because they, they knew that the sun might be shining, but I don't think they realized what a factor it was going to be. I mean, they've done a ton of these games, and a lot of them have been outdoors and during the daytime when the sun has uh, been shining before. But whether they didn't have the right refrigeration unit or the proper piping or whatever, because they did do this one on a golf course, uh, you know, on a green where there's usually just sprinkler heads or whatever. So obviously things didn't go exactly according to plan. There was some concern. They were maybe hoping that it was going to be a little bit more overcast where the sun wouldn't be in effect. The players that thought the game was going to be on the lake, I mean, do you realize how cold it would have to be for such a long period of time for a lake of that size to freeze enough to do a hockey game on? Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be pretty crazy for that to actually happen but but yeah i mean i you know i i thought it was very picturesque and it was it, it was kind of nice but when we talked on friday at the cosmopolitan and you said what's the first things you're looking for in the game the first thing i said was the condition of the ice uh, because i've seen them in football stadiums and baseball stadiums and all that but all those places still have their own piping and everything else where they kind of figure it out this they're literally putting in a place where there's never been a rink. There's never been, you know, like I say, outside of sprinklers to keep the greens pristine, pristine and everything else. Nothing of this magnitude had ever happened before. And, uh, you know, not that I'm any kind of genius or something like that, and I'm sure they thought about it, but they didn't think it was going to be that big of an effect. When was the last time that you saw them lay some reflectors on an ice to protect the ice to keep the, to get the sun going off it? At that point, you knew something was really weird, and I kind of feel sad for the people on the East Coast in that because by the time the game resumed out here, it was midnight when it was starting back there right. for the second and third period. Sure, their ratings weren't very high for that second, uh, for the end of that game, the second and third period up in Tahoe. Yeah, crazy situation. And again, and again, the the day started off looking glorious, and NBC had all the right camera angles. And again, they're very, very familiar 
with that course, having the the golf tournament, the celebrity uh, pro am up there, you know, every year. Yeah, the American and Championships. Yeah. Absolutely, it's a uh, it's beautiful, and we went over the story on Friday on on how this came to be, and that's exactly how it came to be. An NBC executive said, "Hey, you're looking for an outdoor game." You're not going to have the Winter Classic January 1st like they traditionally have. That's going to be canceled because of COVID. No big stadiums. Okay, so we can't have fans. So let's look at an alternative. And sure enough, they were looking at uh, what Lake Lucy in Canada, and that was their first choice. That was the NHL's first choice. And they took a crew up there going back uh, to the end of October, and they said, wow, they're not going to let us do this because they would not allow construction because we saw the – elaborate construction that is needed right not just to put up the rink and all that sort of thing but the sponsorship banners and then uh locker rooms and all that other kind of stuff and anyone who has either been to edgewood or if you've watched that golf tournament you could see how much construction there was it looks like a bunch of log cabins that were put up there and the players had to walk quite a bit of ways just to get to and from the ice uh where their portable locker rooms were and everything but, yeah, they said, this is, this is great. So you knew that NBC was going to do a great job because they were so used to, to shooting these angles of the lake and the mountains and everything. So that came across uh, fantastic. And I thought it was pretty funny to hear Gary Bettman talk about in between the intermissions. He was saying, yeah, he goes, uh, you know, we had the, all this cloud cover. And how do you say it? He goes, the, we've had, uh, you know, Everywhere except where the sun is shining. <laughs> so it's like it sounded kind of funny. He actually said it twice, but yeah, I mean, if you looked over, you know, kind of a little bit towards the east, and even a little bit, uh, you know, towards the north, you look like okay, cloud cover. But then right there, on that golf course, specifically on the 18th fairway, nothing but sunshine. Yeah. So you and, and it's funny, you know, because normally you would think that you'd want the sun to follow you around instead right. of being schleprock or something with a dark cloud over you. But in this case, uh, the dark cloud might have been sun because it kind of snowed a little bit the night before. And I know there was concern about well, is there going to be snow flurries during in the, the morning? Game? Actually, it snowed. Yeah, it snowed yeah. that night, and it's yeah. and it snowed in the morning. But then it kind of cleared up. Mm-hmm. Who knew that clearing up was going to be the bad thing that was going to happen that day? Because mm-hmm. again, with the snow flurries, okay, yeah, the ice crew takes a little bit longer to clean the ice off or whatever, but you can still play with that because we've seen snow flurries in the outdoor games before. And I don't know about you, but when I was watching that game in the first period, I kept on thinking to myself, it's like, that ice crew seems to be taking a long time every time they're going to clear off the ice. Is there something wrong with the ice? And then even that first goal that Colorado did get in that first period, I thought that puck was bouncing a little bit, and I thought that ice looks choppy to me. Now, again, I'm not an expert. I wasn't out there, and sometimes a puck just gets on edge a little bit and it does start bouncing, but it it all seemed to be that that's what it was. And then Colorado said that they thought they were just going to soldier through it and keep on playing, and then they found out, well, no, you're going to sit around for eight hours. And that's the interesting thing, too. What did all the – we know some players took naps. Some got a bite to eat. We'll find out what B-Cell did during that time (laughs) or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, that's a long time to get ramped up for a game, a nationally televised game, a game that the whole country, maybe the whole world in some respects is watching. At least that's what you're hoping for. And then all of a sudden you have to wind it down, chill out, and then pick it up again against the best – Two teams in the division. Right. Yeah, it's funny because the first couple television timeouts, the the NBC crew of Mike Tirico, they, they weren't really talking about the ice because I don't think they knew as well, too. And I thought when we were coming back, it was like, okay, this is a little bit lengthy delay 
why is this? Did they come back from break early? And then we saw the guys, you know, start working on the ice. And then as we as it got deeper into the first period, it got longer and longer. And then they start showing us, uh, you know, some pictures of this. And you can see that there are actually gaps or some chunks yep. out of the ice that, that we're missing here. And you bring up a good point because I never thought about that. About you know, you talk about the system. People always want to talk about Lambeau Field, and Lambeau Field has held hockey games there as well too. University of Wisconsin has has right. played there, and you know, with Lambeau Field, people always talk about oh, the frozen tundra, and they have this very elaborate heating system, the coils and everything. And if you ever take a trip to Lambeau Field, which I am going to take you, by the way, and take you on the Packer Tour, you'll be very impressed at uh, the coils underneath the frozen tundra as he's shaking his head here. But the point of the matter is you're right. Just about all of these uh, other stadiums, you know, sprinkler systems, that sort of thing, refrigeration, whatever it is, you're just on the middle of grass. And the high it ever gets in Tahoe, if you're lucky, it gets to maybe 80 degrees in July or August. And pristine conditions normally but yeah so i don't know again if they need to think this one out a little bit better but from just the naked eye before it started the ice looked beautiful it looked fantastic but then when they start skating on it for warm-ups as we go back and we heard some of the players they said yeah it was it was kind of choppy at that point in time but eh, you know no big deal and we talk about friday i mean i brought that point up about do you think these guys would be nervous about you know, the potential getting injured in a situation like this. And sure enough, when they, uh, Gary Bettman went back to talk to the teams after that first intermission, he said some of the players were very concerned about that. Others said, well, it's not that bad, but, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and plug through it. But, you know, you got to involve the Players Association and, you know, you got collective bargaining agreements and this and that. And, you know, the NHL has that, but I don't think it's at the extent where, say, the NBA or the NFL is, where you would probably really have these players being very, very vocal about, no, I'm not going to risk it or whatever. And uh, I think that was an issue, but we're not hearing exactly how prevalent it was with a lot of the players. But I think it was out there. Well, I think it was definitely out there because we did hear that, that some of the players did raise that concern. But I I didn't think that that many players were going to be nervous about that going into it because there's been so many outdoor games. I mean, they've done tons of them all over the place now in baseball stadiums, in football stadiums, at places where they just throw up a stadium that's uh, that's not there. But again, this one was different and unique because they literally built the entire arena and everything around it. You know, where there wasn't any ice, there wasn't any piping or anything to make ice in that. So that's what was a little bit different. Not that there's anything at Wrigley Field or the big house in Michigan or something like that to build a rink, but you still have those facilities that it's a stadium in that and you have all that stuff in there. So, you know, that was something that I thought was interesting that it might be a concern. The other thing was maybe if NBC would have just made it a primetime game at night right from the beginning, we never would have dealt with this. The game against Boston and Philadelphia went off without a hitch the next night because it was later well it wasn't originally scheduled for later though it was actually scheduled at the at 12 noon the same no, time no, no i understand that but right. i mean but they changed it and they made it later so right. that's why it went off without a hitch it, 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 who knew that the the only thing that they had to do was basically say 
when the sun goes down, we can play hockey. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, and, and yes, you know, and again, it was later, but it still wasn't so late that on the East Coast they couldn't watch it because mm. they made it prime time. Now, that was on NBCSN because, exactly. you know, and they wanted it to be the NBC game, and I understand all that. But, no, I mean, it was just a bizarre situation. It still looked wonderful. I know some of the players after the game, I think Alex Tuck was one of them that mentioned, he's like, yeah, you know, it was just too bad that, you know, you couldn't really see the boats and the mountains and everything in the background and that at night. But it's still picturesque up there at night as well. And I know a friend of mine, um, he, he said that he thought it looked a little bit dark there and that, you know, they should have had more lighting or something. And I was like, dude, they weren't planning on night games. They're lucky they had the lights they did because if you saw Shane Knighty from the night before that first game on Friday night, he took a skate on the ice that evening. He said that the ice did seem pristine and he really liked it and that. And it was really dark looking there because they didn't have it lit to play a right. hockey game. Again, I thought on TV – at night, I actually kind of liked the night game more right. because I could follow the puck more and everything because it, it wasn't. But I, you didn't I, have I, the glare and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. thought it was lit fairly well, especially under the conditions. I'm sure yeah. that they got some more lights and ramped them up there and put as many in as they possibly could. But they were literally, they literally, after they ended that game, had to come up and find a way to light that thing in that eight-hour yeah. span between getting back out on the ice. Yeah, and they did have the lights already ready to go. You see that a lot. Uh, during daytime games for television to to make sure that it's it's lit properly and then if it is overcast you did it but it was not a full fledged like you said lighted stadium type of deal but I thought that the that the uh, lights on the ice was perfect you had enough for that and again I think there was two standards that you could see there and for people saying that it was dark well yes because you didn't have that look to the lake and beyond the trees as that because those lights were basically right above the rink itself. Yeah, that's where they needed to be to play the game. That's all they needed to be. And so it was perfectly fine. You knew that the lights were going to come into play uh, for the Sunday game when they backed that up. But that Sunday game with the uh, Flyers and the Bruins, that was a 4 o'clock start, and you could see that first period, there was some glare. And that was kind of hard to watch from television and for the players, especially the goalies, it was tough on them until the sun completely went down. Then we had a regular hockey game. Yeah, well, David Pasternak didn't mind the delay at all, so yeah, he right. got his hat trick out right. there, and you know Boston seemed to like it. But yeah, I mean, but, but you know what? It was an interesting thing, and, and I know that it sounds like just a cliche or something, but the bottom line is it's the same for both teams. Now, maybe one end was a little bit different in that, uh, but for the most part, they got through it. They had it done. They learned a lesson. It, it, the pictures and everything else are still absolutely magnificent. It Would it have been nicer and better if it all went off without a hitch? Yeah, it would have. But you know what? That's what happens when you try to be creative and you do stuff. When you're doing it live like that, sometimes things happen. The bottom line is, if you're a hockey fan, like I am, like I think we all are here, you saw the two best teams in the division going at it. Colorado, to me, does look like a little bit better team than the Vegas Golden Knights right now. Their back-end speed, their forwards, everything else, but it's very close, but I still think Vegas has a slight edge in the goaltending. Mm -hmm. So I think these two teams are going to continue to battle it out. I'm curious to see what happens before trade deadlines and see what kind of moves either teams make. And I honestly, seriously hope that both are 100% healthy going into the playoffs because I want to see these two teams match up. They deserve it. They've earned it. They should be the final for this conference. Will it be that way? We saw Colorado have some injury problems. Just seeing McCarr back on the ice, that kid is dynamite, and they have some incredible young defensemen. And then Landeskog back, and I mean, 
Colorado's a real deal, but, you know, and I'm not selling Vegas short. Vegas has a lot of talent themselves. They're the two best teams in the division, period, in my opinion. And they will get it on again tonight, this time in Denver, in Colorado. For and the that's 6 o'clock game. because it's mountain time. Absolutely so. correct, 6 o'clock Pacific time. All right, so here's Gary Bettman's comments when he was uh, talking about, you know, what to do and uh, what actually transpired and a lot of the behind-the-scenes work that, uh, you know, they were dealing with to try to resume this game after it was called after the first period. All right, Enzo, the uh, commissioner of the National Hockey League, Gary Bettman, has been able to join us after a lot of conversations. Sorry our conversation is happening with these circumstances, but first, why don't you update us on what the plan is? Uh, The plan is simply that we concluded after consulting with our ice makers and both teams that we didn't think it was safe or appropriate uh, to continue this game at this time. Some of the players wanted to continue playing. Other players were more concerned, and I felt, uh, as did the the Players Association and everybody in hockey operations, and most importantly the ice makers, the most prudent thing to do was to discontinue the game now. We're going to pick it up at 9 o'clock tonight, local time. For those of you on the East Coast, please stay up late. Uh, We have lights. and. When it, we've done over 30 outdoor games, uh, this has been the most uh, difficult weather circumstance we've had, and it's a beautiful day. Right. But if you look up at the sun, the cloud cover is everywhere but where the sun is. Exactly. Uh, and it's uh, did a number on the ice, and we were observing during the first period players uh, getting stuck, particularly in center ice, and tripping or catching a skate. And uh, while both teams and coaches wanted to finish the first period, we concluded after consultation, and I'm sorry it took as long as it did, but we wanted to try and get it right, that the best thing to do is postpone for the time being. Gary Bettman giving his explanation there. And uh, I actually think he handled it well. The entire team handled it well. Again, it wasn't anything that was uh, expected here. You had to operate on the fly with a national television audience. I think they handled it perfectly. Well, they handled it as well as they could have. They tried to make the best of a bad situation. I think they achieved that goal. They learned some things from this game. And like you said, you know, it was the most difficult game. After over 30 outdoor games, this was the most difficult one they've done because they tried to get creative. They thought outside the box. They put it in a place where it's never been done. They put it in a place that doesn't have a stadium and natural seating in that. Now, they didn't have to worry about seating this year because of COVID. But, you know, there were things that could go wrong. And unfortunately for the NHL, they did go wrong, and for NBC as well. So I'm sure that sponsors are they're having to make up some stuff for them because they didn't get the game. The game went from NBC regular to NBC Sports later at night. It was eight hours later. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it was a live-and-learn type situation. I just hope that it doesn't mean that we're never going to see something like this again mm-hmm. because if they get all the things in place and they do it properly – it was a spectacular setting seeing that game. Yeah. I still enjoyed the heck out of that first yeah. period. So did I. So did I. So b- anytime you have an outdoor game, though, and we talked a little bit about this last week, there still seems too much room for error. And I'm not talking about this situation you know, with mechanics and that. It's weather. And, again, this was weather-related. Okay, This wasn't snow. This wasn't wind. It wasn't ice storms. It was sunshine. So that's why it seems very, very strange. But anytime, I don't know about you, but when I hear that there's going to be an outdoor game, I'm always thinking, as like, wow, what's the weather going to be like? And I know they have played in snow before and in other elements. 
But, you know, to me, it just, it, it does kind of take it away. I liked this visual, and I knew I was going to like this visual, of course, because I'm partial to Tahoe and Edgewood and that sort of thing. I don't like watching games, for the most part, in the stadiums, even when they have fans, because there is so much room from where the seating begins in a football stadium, and literally you have 40 to 50 yards of just nothing there. And you see, you'll see trucks, and it's like looking at an infield you know, during, like, say, a Daytona 500 or a race like that or even a horse race to a certain degree unless you have an infield that's, that's packed with fans. So from a visual standpoint, I don't like it, but I just think that this is something – I know the NHL, they think that this is a great thing, but if you go back, Frank, and you look at all of the ratings from the Winter Classics, the Heritage Classics, the ratings are not spectacular. I mean, all of these games do between a one and two share, which isn't great for television audiences. And I'm just not sure. I think I, me, myself, I'd rather see an indoor game knowing it's going to happen. It's going to be on time. The ice is going to be in its pristine condition. It's going to be like a regular game. I just think there's just too much room for air anytime that you do an outdoor game because of weather. I'm going to disagree with you slightly because as a hockey fan, I do like to see the outdoor games here and there. But as I said, going into this game, to me, the mistake the NHL made was years ago, and it goes back a lot to the year that the Super Bowl was in New York when they had three outdoor games in New York alone, they've watered it down. They've made it so it's not as special anymore. Yeah, Okay, we have the Winter Classic and then the Heritage Classic. Well, it used to just be the Winter Classic. I mean, one game is enough. Two should be the max. Yeah. There shouldn't be more than that. And maybe this year with a, with a depleted 56-game schedule, maybe every game means even more. Maybe they shouldn't have done it this year. I like them for trying to think outside the box. It almost seems like a reward to somewhat to some of the teams in that too because the players do look forward to playing in them and that. But, no, I understand your concerns about that kind of stuff. But we have seen a bunch of them go off without a hitch. My problem with it is they've made it less special by having so many. That's my problem with the outdoor games, you know, and I do think they should only be in iconic places or maybe something like this Wrigley field, the big house at Michigan, as much as I can't stand them. Like you mentioned, if they did one at Lambeau field or something like that, you know, places like that are fine. But when they just do it, Oh, let's, you know, why was there an outdoor game in San Jose? I mean, what, you know, I, I never really understood that. Now maybe the sharks deserve one, maybe not, but, but again, I, I like them more in something that well, means more than just right. hockey and that, you know, right. that, that also has a time. Like we said, of there was three games in New York that one year. One of them wasn't in Yankee Stadium. It was why at, it was at City Field. We saw Bush Stadium in St. Louis, which you really don't resonate with hockey at all, right? Uh, and then Target Field this year. That's where the Winter Classic in Minnesota was. Sure, Minnesota, Minneapolis, great hockey city, great hockey state. We get that, but you know that that's a, a stadium that's been up less than ten years. So again, yeah, well, and, I, and and I know there's already talk. They said that they're planning on trying to do one here at the new Raider Stadium, uh-huh. you know, within the not too distant future. And I understand too; they want to do the big new shiny toy in that to some respect too. But if I'm one of the other teams, one of the teams that hasn't been an outdoor game yet, right now, quite frankly, I'm a little bit po'd that Vegas already has an outdoor game and we haven't in our entire existence. I don't know how you really justify that. And again, it kind of fell into place because, like you said, they were going to do it in Lake Lucy in Canada. Well, those would have been obviously two Canadian teams. So, you know, maybe they were the beneficiary things just aligned that they could get this done. But if they didn't do another one, it wouldn't bother me. 
But I would like to see them scale it back down, and if they're going to do it, just do the one or two a year. Make it special, make it something, and make it a reward for the teams involved. Teams that, first off, get ratings anyhow and that people want to see, because you mentioned the ratings aren't that high. Well, sometimes the ratings aren't that high because they're not necessarily teams that people want to see. These, I thought, were four pretty good teams. I'm curious to see what the ratings are, but then do they mean anything when you take to the fact that they went to NBC Sports and that they weren't really on at the same time because so many things went wrong? Make it a reward. Make it a place where you know it can work because when it doesn't, now you're answering questions like this. The clouds were everywhere except for where the sun was shining. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Captain Obvious. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Remember, the Golden Knights and Colorado Avalanche, they will play game four of their uh, week-long series, this game in Denver tonight at 6 o'clock. And, of course, you can wa- watch it all, I believe, on uh, AT&T Sportsnet. Yeah, well and, and so. I've, from what I've heard, I believe, once again, Robin Leonard has not made the trip. Right, so Marc-Andre Fleury again. Okay. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk to the five-time world champion, Timothy Bradley, He was there calling the action for ESPN, sitting ringside. What a fight it was at the MGM Grand Convention Center. Oscar Valdez, Mikel Burchelt. We'll relive that with Tim Bradley coming up next. This is boxing referee Kenny Bayless. And what I say, you must obey. So be sure to catch up with the broadcast at tcmartinshow.com. All right, Saturday night, we saw a vicious knockout take place at the MGM Grand Convention Center, and it was Oscar Valdez. Uh, and we had Oscar on the show before he fought at the Cosmopolitan, if you remember, going back uh, last year. Very happy for him, defeating Mikel Burchelt. Tenth round, one-punch knockout happened with one second left in round number 10, and uh, it was devastating where... Burchelt was not unconscious. Paramedics had to come in. He was taken over to the UCD Med Center after that. So, um, yes, uh, he, he is okay. He's doing fine. But uh, the victor definitely was Oscar Valdez. And uh, congratulations to him. Now improves his record to 29-0 and with 23 knockouts. And the man who was on the scene, who called the fight the five-time former champion himself, he knows a thing or two about KOs and everything. Does a fantastic job with ESPN as well. Timothy Bradley, what's happening, Tim? What's happening, baby? What's going on? How you doing? Good Thanks to have me on the show. There you go, man. Hey, great talking with you again. Uh, love having you. I think last time I saw you, man, I think we, we saw you. We were breaking some bread, some dinner after one of these fights at the MGM. I think it was before the pandemic and everything, man. So always great yeah. visiting with you, brother. Always. Likewise. Likewise. So, uh, Tim, tell us what your eyes saw on on uh, Saturday night. I know that you thought that Valdez could get this job done because you knew he came in here with a lot of intensity. He came in here, I don't want to say with, with anger, but this was a guy that was very, very focused and felt that he was basically getting disrespected. <laughs> Sometimes that's all it takes, my friend. You know, you, you never want to motivate a, a champion, and that's exactly what happened. Oscar Valdez, he went somewhere mentally that no one thought he can go, honestly. He had the performance of his life. Um, You know, him and his team, it was almost like it was them against the world because even his idols, including myself and and many other experts out there, 
picked Burchell to win the fight, and we based our our predictions based on the way he has looked in his past two fights. It actually looked like he was actually declining or on the decline of his career. But man, he proved us all wrong that night. He showed his, you know, two-time Olympic, uh, uh, you know, appearances. Uh, he showed that quality inside the ring. Um, he showed everything. He showed he can box. He stepped to Burchelt as well in spots. Um, his jab was so superior that night, even though he had a five-inch reach disparity or disadvantage going into the fight. Um, you know, and his power showed up. Uh, and the left hook is, is a punch that I I thought and I saw and I knew that, you know, this is a saving grace. This is the punch that always gets him out of trouble no matter what. Um, but he was dominating from the opening bell all the way to the finish. Um, there were couple of, you know, rounds maybe in between where Burchelt was starting to come on. But, you know, this kid bit down on his mouthpiece. He showed that grit, that determination, and finally landed that kill shot, man, right on the chin. Wow. Devastating knockout. Reminded me of uh, Marquez versus Pacquiao. Yeah. And that was one of the, the things that I was trying to illustrate is, is that if he was going to fight this fight, he had two options. He can be Tim Bradley versus Marquez and use his feet, which he did. And he can also be Marquez in Marquez versus Pacquiao and time him on the way in as he did in spots to to get that knockout victory. Tim, you mentioned that the left hook that real, and you mentioned it during the course of the broadcast that we saw that left hook come into play basically from round two on, and that was uh, his bread and butter. And I was kind of surprised that Burchell wasn't ready for that, and it it, it really won him the fight. I mean, because every, every time he needed to go somewhere, he delivered that that blow, even in those middle rounds. And we saw, you know, Burchelt coming forward, and we thought, okay, maybe Valdez is gassed a little bit because he expended mm-hmm. so much energy early on. That left hook came into play, and uh, again, it, where would you rank that left hook as far as other fighters that we've seen today? You know, listen to me. I, I this was his best performance by far. Um, you know, I follow Valdez in his entire career. I'm a fan of Oscar Valdez. Um, I did like his his initial um, relationship or marriage with, I would say, uh, Ray Reynoso. I knew he was going to come in this fight ready. Um, but that left hook, it ranks probably, I, I have to say that <laughs> this probably earned him a seat at the Hall of Fame. This win right here. I mean, he knocked out the boogeyman in this division, a guy that a lot of guys didn't want to face, uh, a, a guy that, you know, hadn't hadn't lost in years. Someone that was piling on title defenses. This was going to be a seven title defense. He was chasing greatness. He was chasing Chavez Senior. Um, you know, as far as uh, you know, title defenses. And so this guy was a serious puncher, a high volume puncher. And these are some of the dangerous guys in the sport. And he showed that you know he also has grit and determination by the way he was fighting back, even though he was hurt. He was literally fighting. You know autopilot fighting on autopilot on fumes and it showed you what type of shape this man was in and how determined he was because he was taking some big shots but you got to rank that that knockout man up there with like marquez versus Pacquiao. uh you can rank it up there with with um shoot i wouldn't even say i wouldn't go as far as uh <laughs> i wouldn't go as far as saying buster douglas uh <laughs> mike tyson but dang it you know it was a hell of a knockout Probably knockout of the year, I would have to say, 
granted, because of the opponent that he was facing, one in the way he did it, in the fashion he did it, with one punch. And um, probably this this might even earn him a right as a fighter of the year, you know, because everyone, a lot of experts picked him to lose the fight. So um, this is really good for Oscar Valdez's stock. You know, his stock, like some people would say, it, it, it went to the moon almost like almost like GameStop. <laughs> the same way his stock shot up there, man. Um, and he has secured some big fights down the line for some really big money in the future. Yeah, we had talked to Bob Arum about this uh, last week, and Bob said, hey, this definitely could be a fight of the year. So Tim Bradley's joined us now, the five-time former champ, and uh, does a fantastic job on the ESPN broadcast right here. T.C. Martin along with Frank Harnish. Hey, Tim, I noticed during the fight that there was some speculation as to uh, whether or not Valdez should be going to the body to try to uh, wear Burchelt down even a little bit more and take his legs out. But it looked like because of the power punches that he hit him with that he already took a lot of his power away from him, and Valdez was gaining confidence. And even when Burchelt did get a shot here or there, it didn't have the same effect Although because although his body wasn't really beat up, he had been hit so many times that it seemed like he was really leery of really letting go and uh, leaving himself open to another one of those left hooks. Yeah, Burchelt, you know, sometimes what happens is, is that fighters will we'll get hit, we'll go down, we'll get hurt, and then we bounce back and then, for some apparent reason, it's almost like our body goes into shock. And then we get hit with the same blows, and then they don't hurt as much. You don't feel them. And, you know, that becomes a problem. I become worried for a fighter that's getting hit with big shot after big shot, and he won't go down, and he just keeps coming and keeps coming, and it almost seems like he can't feel it. You know, um, Burchell, Burchell toughness is one thing. Now, as far as, as far as going down to the body to answer your question, Yes, when you get a guy and a guy that is big and as strong as Burchell or any fighter, when you hurt him to the head, your objective is is to break him down to the body because no fighter likes to get hit to the body. Okay, this is boxing basics one-on-one. You get a hurt fighter, you go down to his body. What that does is he's going to have to cover his body. As soon as you hit him to the body, he's going to cover his body. It's going to weaken him. He's going to bring his hands down, and then you have the opportunity to land something even more vicious up top. So you're weakening him at the same time, and then you're, you're going to get him to expose his face even more and chin even more by hitting him to the body. You know, Tim, Valdez outboxed him. He was more physical. He actually roughed him up, which I don't think any of us thought could possibly happen to a guy like Burchett, like you called him the boogeyman. But it just seemed that Valdez wanted it more. He was more hungry, yeah. and it definitely showed. Do you, did you get the, the sense when you saw Burchell in the fighter meetings leading up to this, or even when he walked in the ring or the way he started the fight, that maybe he took Valdez for granted a little bit? No, not at all. Um, he didn't take Valdez for granted. Uh, you got to understand that, you know, there was a fact, there's some factors in here. You know, he hadn't made 130 pounds in 14 months. The last time we had saw him, it was a bout that wasn't sanctioned. It was in Mexico. It didn't count. He fought at 135 pounds. So he blows up in between fights, you know, probably put on about 20 to 30 pounds. So he had to tear, tear down and get all that weight off. And, you know, he's a very massive guy. He's a big guy for 130 pounds. So I saw first. In the beginning, I saw a guy that looked a little bit, I would say, drained, weight drained. Like, his focus was more making the weight than it was the actual fight. 
you know, that was the hardest thing for him. You know, once he got on the trial scale, he was happy he made the weight. Um, you know, we saw some things during the lead up to the fight to where, you know, he needed help up onto the scale, help up onto the stairs. And that weakens a fighter. And that weakens your ability also to be able to take a shot because of dehydration. So after the first round, I saw he wasn't doing much. Valdez was moving, using angles and using his jab and was a lot quicker. But then the third round is when I really saw how lethargic this guy looked. And I was like, man, and I said it during the broadcast. I was like, he looks a bit, you know, weakened, weight drained. You know, his hook wasn't as sharp as I normally see it. His punches weren't as crisp as I usually see Burchell. And I'm like, okay, something's wrong. You know, I don't think it was he took him lightly. I think that he worked so hard to get that weight off that it drained him. And he didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a hundred percent for the fight. Take nothing away from Valdez. Valdez did exactly what he was supposed to do. And he beat down, he beat up the bully. Yeah. He did exactly what he's supposed to do. But I'm just saying from my eyes, he was weight drained without a doubt. He was weakened because of making that weight. No, I, I agree with you. And I want you to expand on that a little bit as, as well, too, because after the weigh-in, we heard that he immediately went to go eat. And then when he got on the scales the, the night uh, before getting in the ring, he gained 16 pounds. Tell me, yeah. so during that point in time, when a fighter basically has to struggle to make weight, and then they go ahead and they gain you know, 16 pounds and they're doing all that, I think some people will think, well, okay, now he's basically back to normal. But that really isn't the case, is it? No. Describe that, what, what effect that has, just because he may weigh more, but talk about the 24 hours from the weigh-in to actually when you step in the ring. See, that's the balloon effect. That's how you know when a fighter struggles making weight when he blows up, when his body absorbs a lot of that water and tries, basically tries to protect itself. It stores it. So Oscar Valdez, he came in a lean 10 pounds over the weight limit, which is pretty normal. But when you have a guy 15, 16 pounds over the, the limit, you know, then you worry, wow, did he really make the weight the proper way? Um, during that time, I heard that he was eating pizza and just candy and all this ridiculous food that doesn't nourish your body and gives you the energy necessary to go out there and perform a 12, in a 12-round battle. You know, you got to eat cleanly all the way through. Even after the weigh-ins, you want to consume the same type of foods that you were eating, but more of it after the weigh-ins so you don't have that type of effect. Eating pizza, all that sodium, and, and, and I mean, water retention and, and drinking water and all these sugary substances he was drinking did nothing for his energy. It did nothing for him. It actually hurt him. And that's an indication when a fighter has a tough weight, a tough if he If he made weight or if he didn't make weight properly, you will see the increase, the blow up in, in, in weight. And a lot of people say, well, he's the bigger man, he's a bigger man. Yes, he is the bigger man, but that's that's false. That's not <laughs> that's not real. That's not real weight right there. That's that's water retention because of what he's been eating and consuming. So it's always not a good it's always not a great thing to be to be big in a fight and and to be heavy like Burchelt was because you saw how slow he was and how lethargic he looked in spots and how, you know, just uncoordinated in the spots, man. But you, and then you then you saw the difference when somebody that did it the right way in in Oscar Valdez that was sharp and that was keen and his eyes and his focus was there. Uh he was just there. He was there to win and he did everything the right way. 
So you're you're saying that uh, eating some Hawaiian pizza is no good? Come on, he had some pineapple, Tim. Pineapple's no good. You can't, you, you, you can't be doing that, man. No, you got to eat your complex carbohydrate. Any athlete knows that. I mean, come on, not not pizza. All that cheese. Oh, come on. So That's terrible so, for your system. I know. So, so you mentioned that Valdez has set himself up for some big fights. Where does Rochelle go now from this fight on? I mean, does he stay at this weight class? You said he's had a hard time making this weight. Or can he stay at this weight class, but he's got to be more intelligent about it after and getting ready for the fight? Or does he have to move up a class if it's that difficult for him to cut it? You know, to be, to be honest with you, I think, I think he really needs to take a long break. A long break. Um, he shouldn't be thinking about fighting for maybe possibly a, a year or so. Um, taking that type of punishment, getting knocked out, brutally knocked it, knocked out the way he did in that fashion, not only does it affect him physically, it also affects him mentally. You know, he's going to have to take some time to regroup and recharge and just rethink the situation and see how he's going to come back, if he's going to come back and continue to fight uh, at 130 or 135. Only he knows how he felt during the fight. And and I and I can assure you, he can say that. Hey, I I had a tough time making weight. There's no doubt. You know, in the lead up in the fights, in the lead up to the fights, fighters we lie. We don't tell. We don't always tell the truth. <laughs> we want everybody to feel that we're 100. percent But you know, after the fight is when the excuses come in, and sometimes it's it's with good reason. Uh, maybe he'll say, you know, I was weakened by making the weight. I didn't feel strong in the fight. I don't know. I don't want to put excuses in this man's uh, mind or whatever, but or make excuses for him, but. Um, that's typically when we find out what's the real truth. But if he's going to come back, he has to make that decision, where it's, whether it's 130 or 135, depending on how he felt in the, in the fight against Valdez. Yeah, I got a feeling that it, it, he may go up. And I know that the Lomachenko's out there, too. And uh, that would be a heck of a fight. And I know both these guys are yeah. coming off losses. But, man, I mean, think about that. And, you know, talking about those yeah. two guys just, you know, before their losses, you're talking about a, a, a mega fight. And now uh, I think that it would still be an attractive fight, though. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, styles, styles and temperaments makes fights. Yep. Uh, Lomachenko, a lot of people is kind of ridden off Lomachenko since he lost since he lost to uh, Teofimo Lopez. And that's typically how – how boxing fans and how how it's projected all the time is all he lost. He's not as good as everybody says. No, Lomachenko is still a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know his track record speaks for itself. He's a guy that's daring and always willing to take the the risk to be great. So you know you got to appreciate a fighter with his class and with his determination and the way he approaches the game because. You know, a lot of fighters today, they don't want to fight against the best. This man, he wanted to face the best. He came up a little short, maybe started a little bit late in the fight, but uh, I think he's going to come back full force after surgery. Uh, you know, I, I think that he wants to prove a lot of people wrong again because he's kind of lost right now behind these other guys at 135 pounds. Rather, we see Tomachenko at 135 or 130 we will see a return of Lomachenko, and we will be talking about him and how great he is in the future, I believe. All right, Tim Bradley joins us, ESPN, the five-time former champion. Up next for Oscar Valdez, coming off that vicious knockout victory against Miguel Burchell on Saturday night. Uh, Shakur Stevenson was sitting ringside, another top-ranked guy. Uh, You've seen him fight uh, numerous times and, and, and called his action. Is it Shakur Stevenson, or is it maybe Jamel Herring, Carl Frampton winner? Mm. What is next for Oscar Valdez? You know, Oscar Valdez right now is is sitting pretty, probably at home with his family resting. But you know, if he's in the driver's seat now, 
Um, that knockout, like I said, he's on he's on cloud 100 right now. He's enjoying, you know, the fruits of his hard labor. And I'm sure, you know, in the near future, he's going to be, you know, be selective on who he wants. Shakur Stevenson was there. Shakur Stevenson did call him out. Uh, I read something early this morning that he would uh, would love a match with Shakur Stevenson. He says he ain't running from anybody. So that's a, a very interesting fight. Shakur Stevenson has uh, he's a he's a boxer. Um, he's a tremendous boxer. He's a southpaw boxer. He's an Olympian as well. Um, and that will be one hell of a fight. And then you also have, I mean, uh, you got Lomachenko. You have uh, Tank Davis said something. I, I read. Tank Davis won in the fight with Valdez and that he can knock him out. And so, you know, a lot of attention right now is on Oscar Valdez because of what he did to the boogeyman, Burchell. But uh, he's going to have his options, and uh, I just can't wait to see where where, where he's going to go. He, it can be Frampton. It can be the winner of Jamel Herring and Frampton. It can be Shakur Stevenson. It can be Tank. It can be Lomachenko. I don't care. I just want to get in. I just want to be there to witness another fight of Oscar Valdez I have to tell you, man, this kid right here, he is my hero today, right now, man. I I, I have to I have to say that, man, and I say that with, with all love and respect to this young man because he used and fueled and was fueled off the doubters and all the haters and I know what that feels like. And and he just and that just goes to prove when you put your mind to something and you know you need a little bit more inspiration you know your haters can be your fans at the same damn time and it can motivate you and he proved that and he showed the world that uh you know don't let anybody tell you that you can't do do anything and you know and with that being said my man that's why he's my hero today man i respect that and i love that type of attitude you know, one thing that I think is interesting leading up to his next fight, whoever it's going to be, you mentioned the fact that coming into this fight, he maybe felt a little bit disrespected, so he had that chip on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. How does he keep that mentality and that, like, being the underdog and being disrespected if after a performance like that there's a good chance his next fight he goes and is the favorite and people are having expectations of him? It seems like some <laughs> guys fight better when they feel they're being disrespected. How do you keep that feeling even if you're the favorite going into a fight? Well, one of the ways I kept it was it kept kept that that same uh, type of feeling is is that that the money get better. <laughs> <laughs> this is the true. The money got better. <laughs> you know, the money the money will, will definitely turn turn you into an animal as well. And um, you know, I'm not sure how he how he you know gets ready for his fights, but you know, this time around it was the negative energy that fueled him. Uh, just as you said, the next time he fights, everybody's going to be in his corner. How would he react? I don't know how he's going to react, but I just I know for damn sure the money is going to be there, and he's going to want to continue to make that type of money, so he's going to want to win the fight. All right. Last thing for you, Tim, before we let you go. We're just starting here 2021. We knew that this could be fight of the year material. Give yeah. me a fight that you want to see. I don't care which weight division that you really would like to see get made. What are you looking forward to this year? Of course, uh, the, the the first fight that I want to see be made, honestly, this year is Terrence, Terrence and, and Earl Spence. Mm-hmm. I, I would love that fight. I think every all the fans in the world, I think everybody would love that fight. I'm not sure it's going to happen this year, but that will be my number one uh, pick, my number one pick on my list. And then uh, if we can't get that, I wouldn't fury, fury uh, Joshua. Um, we need another undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. We haven't had one since Lennox Lewis. 
Uh, it's two Brits going at it. I, I don't think there's nothing bigger than that right now in the sport than those two. And that'll be my second and my third is going to be Taylor Ramirez. I think that is a fantastic clash of styles. Uh, you got the pressure fighter versus the boxer slash puncher and uh, Taylor. So I, I can't wait for these fights to happen. Um, you know, these are great fights. Uh, I am very interested in the 135 pounds division as well and see how all these guys, the younger fighters, how they're going to, you know, project their careers and how they're going to move forward in their careers. And hopefully we can get a big mega fight with these guys maybe at the end of the year or maybe even the beginning of next year between the, what what they say, four kings or three kings or whatever. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Princes, <laughs> princes, the three princes, because they're young, man. But uh, hopefully we can get some of those guys into the ring. I know the Fox Boxing fans would like to see those guys fight as soon as possible, and so would I. You notice he didn't say anything about – Mayweather or Logan Paul or Conor McGregor. None of that nonsense, right, Tim? No, no, none of man, that garbage, right? None of that garbage, man. Those, <laughs> those are called those are called money grabs. Those are called money grabs. Yep. And you know, and if you don't know that, I'm I'm here to let you know. They're called money grabs. It's a popularity contest. And they just go in there and they have a little fun and, and you pay for it and they just take your money out your pocket. That's what they do. I ain't knocking them, but I'm just being honest with you. That's what it is. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you didn't even mention Lamar Odom and Aaron, I don't know who he is, Carter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, man. That's not that's not boxing. Those are exhibitions, man. Boxing is different. <laughs> boxing is different. The, the, the world-class boxing, you know, where you have the, the fighters come up from when they're young, young, young men into the sport and they grow. And they become champions. That's what I'm all about. Not this, not this whole exhibition, YouTubers, all that stuff. I ain't knocking your hustle, but that's not boxing to me, well, my friend. Hey, we're all, you know, you know, man. We are all on the same page on that, man. Don't. Yeah. It just, it's irritating to hear when this stuff keeps coming up, and even the, you know, UFC guys that want to try to get in the, in the boxing ring. I mean, come on. It just, it's irritating, man. Is what well, it is because, like yeah, you said, yeah. We're, talk- we're talking the sweet science here, man. And you saw a great one on Saturday night. And, uh, yes, we did. And anyone who saw Oscar Valdez defeating Mikel Burchell was fantastic. And uh, we'll see uh, more of that coming up real soon. All right, my man. I appreciate you as always. Look forward to talking with you again uh, very, very soon. Yeah. Uh, tell your lovely wife, Monica, hello as well. And oh, yeah. uh, you take care, brother. I look forward to seeing you when you're back in Vegas. Thank you very much, man. You guys take it easy. Thank you. Bye-bye. There he is. Tim Bradley, the five time former champ and again a fantastic job that he does as part of the espn boxing crew him andre ward joe tessitore great stuff uh, saturday night now when you're looking at something like that and you see burchell coming in and he's gained all that weight do you immediately pick up your phone and go i need to in-game wager this fight because we could have an upset on the on the making oh yeah yeah believe me i i thought i saw the exact same thing that tim saw too and just you know the look in his eyes and everything it just and there were those reports out there that he started eating right you know after the weigh-in he couldn't wait and valdez even made a couple snide comments to him and uh, Burchell tried to deflect that and say, no, come on, man, I'm fine, I'm fine. He wasn't fine. So, yeah, Tim's eyes read it right. All right, on the other side, we're talking B-Sal, Brian Salmon, the news director over at News 3. He's going to join us, talk Vegas Golden Knights, college hoops, and a whole lot more coming your way. Hour number two, the T.C. Martin Show on a manic Monday.